let's say people who make music and they're interested and they're serious about making music, they become better students and they become cleverer students and they become craftier students and they know when they hear something or see something, they know exactly what they want. And so, you know, you, you, you sift, you're, you're like the fella on the river with the little dish thing and he's looking for the gold. You, you know exactly what you're after. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. I'm Joe McHugh. In 2015, Paul and I traveled to Greensboro, North Carolina to attend the National Folk Festival. While there, I had the honor to interview Irish fiddler James Kelly, whose father was the renowned fiddler and concertina player John Kelly. James was born and grew up in Ireland, but now lives in the United States. And along with being a great fiddler, he is also steeped in the history of the traditional instrumental music of Ireland. My name is James Kelly and I was born in Dublin, Ireland in 1957, January 1957. And um, I was born um, into a family of five, um, a mother and father. My father was John Kelly. He was a uh, a, re a revered and very well-known Irish musician, uh, fiddle player and concertina player from County Clare, the West Clare. And uh, my mother was um, from Wicklow, South County Wicklow, um, a place called Shalala. And um, she had music in her family also. And I was the youngest of five children. Did your dad speak Gaelic? He, he, he had, uh, let's say he, he, was, he, he, was, he had kind of expressions and so on that he had. He wasn't a native speaker. When he was growing up, um, he was born in 1911 and he, there was Irish spoken, there were native speakers in his part of Clare at that time. And there were native speakers uh, in Clare right up to the 1970s in his area as well. So he had a lot of traditional expressions. He was interested in all cultural things and uh, the language and so on. And he used them a lot with the family when, when uh, we were growing up in that. So going back even further, grandparents, great-grandparents, so how, long, how far back does this uh, interest in music go? And what kind of work did people do? Were they farmers or uh, what, what was you know, the different, let's say on your father's side of the family to start. Yeah, they were farmers. Uh, my father was a farmer and uh, his father before him and generations before that. And uh, there were musicians in the family. My, my grandmother, her name was Elizabeth Kelly and she was a concertina player. My father's uncle Thomas, his name was Keane, Thomas Keane. On that branch of the family, we had the Kellys and the Keanes and the Griffins were the three prominent names. And, um, and then in the locality itself, at that time, of course, it was closed off to the outside, so to speak. And areas throughout the county and throughout the country were like that. So the concept of being able to travel, let's say, from his area he, the townland he lived in was called Kilbalion, a very remote part of the, almost right out of the peninsula. Um, hopping on a bicycle and going seven miles to a country dance, let's say, was like, you may as well be going to America. You just didn't leave your area. Mm -hmm. And the only reason that you seemed to leave your area was for something like that. You went for some special occasion, but people normally didn't. They stayed within the locality that they lived in. And then, so all the influences were all local. Mm -hmm. um, and so there were quite a number of wonderful musicians living at that time when my father was growing up. And the area itself had a great tradition of uh, music, particularly with the fiddle and concertina. And then it went from there. Um, I couldn't tell you exactly how many generations there was music in the family, but there was definitely music in our family for a number of generations before my father. I'm kind of curious about uh, the fiddle, its first arrival in Ireland, because the instrument goes back 300 years or so in terms of the Stradivari violins becoming 
the instrument that we think of as the violin today. There were Baroque instruments before that, but th- this instrument. And so uh, do you have any notion of how that happened, how the violin got into Ireland and became such a, an important part of Irish traditional music? Well, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily know the you know, the history of how the violin came to Ireland, but uh, I think people, they just used what they had. They used what they could get their hands on, and uh, if a fiddle was available, let's say, they played fiddles and flutes. We have a tradition of flute playing and fiddle playing, and uh, let's say, in the case of County Clare, concertina playing. Um, So what was interesting about County Clare, for example, in terms of the concertina, there were more concertina players in County Clare at that time, let's say between the mid-1800s to the early 1900s and mid-1900s, than there were in the whole of Ireland combined, if you added up all the other counties. And so, so I think people could get them, and they were cheap to get, and the same thing with concertinas, and if it fell apart or you couldn't use it anymore, you got another one, you know? My grandfather, I never knew him to lilt formally, but my mother used to talk about him lilting. He's a Quinn, and uh, he would sing these songs, you know, just uh, lilting is, uh, I don't know, how would, how would you describe lilting to someone? Well, they, they used to say puss music, you know, and when they didn't have an instrument, if there wasn't an instrument to play, if they had a gathering, a local gathering, then the people lilted the tunes and they danced to the lilting. Yeah. And so I guess I'm curious about something that maybe there's no answer or no one could tell us is, were these tunes in existence before the violin arrived in Ireland? And if they were, how were they? I know the hornpipe is this idea that there was this instrument, a very old instrument, uh, with the horn of, a, I guess, a cow and, and some notes in it. And of course, the penny whistle is an instrument from Ireland. So do you think the music was already in existence, These this kind of unique melodic structures of the Irish tune. Uh, it seems quite um, special before the violin arrived, and then the violin was this like great vehicle by which to express these tunes. Well, we, 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 we had a tradition, and we have had a tradition in Ireland that goes back probably about 1,500 years, and if you study the ancient manuscripts that they have, um, there were accounts of um, religious people travelling in Ireland, and they were so impressed by the ability of people to make music. So you had ancient uh, style instruments that looked like a hammer dulcimer in Ireland about a thousand years ago or so. That was one of the instruments that they talked about. So there seems to have been a history of people making music and making good music and and so on and so on. But if you if you move from there into, let's say, the 1700s, the early 1700s, it seems to me that um, the time measures were, in a sense, imported into Ireland, some of them, because traditionally we had three, four, and perhaps nine, eight as a, an ancient time measure. But some of the more modern uh, time measures that you have in Irish music may have been influenced by European classical music, per- particularly from the Baroque period. And if you look at the music from the time of the Irish harpers, let's say, and we don't have detailed accounts, but if you look at music from about 15, the mid-1500s, right to the time of O'Carlin and after O'Carlin's death, and then um, Edward Bunting, who wrote about the Belfast Harp Festival in 1792, you realise that there was a very, very definite tradition expressed by people who played the harp, but not necessarily influenced by Europe. They had their own tradition and their own styles of playing and so on in Ireland. And it was only, let's say, with with the, uh, you know, you'd have to study the history of Ireland, but but uh, the, the wealthy people, the landlord and the gentry who were in Ireland at the time, both the Irish and the English uh, landlords and so on, they started to bring in musicians from Europe who were playing Baroque-style music, and consequently people in Ireland were exposed, musicians who heard some of this music were exposed to the sounds, that sound, and in turn, they would have been exposed to some of the time measures and on and on and on until you, if you look at the music of O'Carlin, let's say, and O'Carlin is uh, the most documented harper in the history of the music because he seemed to be in the right place at the right time, his music would be heavily influenced by European classical music. 
and it wasn't necessarily influenced by the traditional style of music that was played in Ireland during his lifetime, which was 1670 to 1738. And um, the Belfast Harp Festival that I mentioned to you took place in 1792. And a young musician by the name of Edward Bunting, who was a classically trained organist, was asked to go to the Belfast Harp Festival and document the music and the musicians that he listened to. I think there was a total of maybe 11 musicians. Uh, there was a 15-year-old, and then there was Dennis Hempson from County Derry, a place called McGilligan, who was in his 90s. I think he was 95. And Dennis Hempson was the only musician who played in the old style with the long nails, and he played brass strings, I think. And his music represented music that was played 200 years previous to 1792. And Dennis Hempson, when Edward Bunting went to meet him afterwards, was lamenting the fact that all these harpers at the Belfast Harp Festival were playing compositions of O'Carroll and not the old traditional music that was played there, you know? It's fascinating. Being a fiddler myself and having first learned Southern Appalachian fiddle music, which is very much related to um, the music that came over from the British Isles. And, uh, and then I spent a year in Scotland and I studied some Scottish music. But there's something about three time versus four time that is, it's, a, it's like a different way of being in the world, a different way of understanding music. And I found that transition to be quite difficult and fascinating at the same time. I mean, I can play the tune, I can play a jig but I'm not sure I'm really playing the jig. I mean, it's a different thing altogether. I don't know what you might want to say about that, because you know, when you, you shift from, from reels and hornpipes to slip jigs and single jigs and double jigs, and is there really a shift in something going on in the way the consciousness is about time? Well, it's, it's a great question. Um, I, I, there's a, you know, there's a, a lyricalness to the tunes in general, um, and uh, the lyricalness is represented by not only the melody, the structure of the melody, but the the ornamentation within the melody. So Irish music, as an example, you have freedom to express yourself in the music itself. And traditionally speaking, the concept of playing a tune was all about, let's say, staying within the structure of the melody and trying to add from within the structure versus taking from elsewhere and ornamenting. So, so it could be melodic variation or let's call it technique, uh, variations in technique. And so, and so I suppose that's a fundamental question that people have to ask themselves is, how do you want to approach it? And within the tradition itself, then there are many, many different ways to do the same thing. There are many, many different styles of playing a jig. There are many, many different approaches to playing the same jig. Uh, you have people who may want to play more on the beat and you have people who may want to swing it off the beat. For, for example, if you study Kerry style fiddling, in particular North Kerry, they may swing off the beat more so than, let's say, players up in Donegal. What does that mean to swing off the beat? Well, in other words, they're 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 playing. Uh, they're emphasising, let's say, two, whereas the other player may emphasise one. You know, they might go. It's hard to do an instrument, but anyway, they're they're. You, you want them on the beat always, on the beat always, and then they start to emphasise off the beat, and becomes what they're emphasising, and so it starts to change the swing of the tune. And if, you, and if you study the style of dancing, because, you know, music is all about playing for dancing, primarily. It's not to go in, let's say, to, uh, you know, I can do all these things on my instrument, let me show you what I can do. That's not the concept at all. I mean, the dancer wants you to play with good rhythm. Mm -hmm. that's, yeah. the, that's the whole essence of playing for dancing. And so the music supported the dancing and the dancing influenced the music and uh, they danced in a particular way and the music uh, developed in that way to support whatever was going on locally. So the thing about Irish history is that in communities throughout the country where people were extremely poor, 
they they really didn't have very much uh, in terms of things and uh, people were just struggling to make a living as best as they could. So what they did have, of course, is they had themselves and they had their own gatherings and they had their social activities and they had their music making and their language and their singing and their storytelling. And had each other. And had each other, right. Yeah. Because so many gifted Irish musicians left Ireland to come to the United States in years past, let's listen now to James Kelly play the tune Farewell to Ireland. I think as you improve, it's a, it's, a, it's a technical expression. So if you talk about making music, let's say, you know, the essence of making music, do you want it to become a technical expression or do you want it to become, in essence, an emotional expression? And either, either way, some kind of technique has to support the expression. And then as you study whatever you're going to do and you get better, so let's say let's say people who make music and they're interested and they're serious about making music they become better students and they become cleverer students and they become craftier students and they know when they hear something or see something they know exactly what they want and so you know you 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 sift you're you're like the fella on the river with the little dish thing and he's looking for the gold you you know exactly what you're after and so the same thing is um, if you discuss technique. So, so you need some form of technique to express whatever you're going to do. And so the more you study your own technique, the easier that becomes. But you have to go through a block of time where you think about what you're going to do. <laughs> you know, it can't be mindless, then you won't know what you're doing, you know. <laughs> it makes me, uh, if we use that metaphor, maybe take it one more step. What would fool's gold be if you're <laughs> sifting through this material and you think you found gold, but it's not? And it's not going to be a while. Do you know what the real gold is? Well, fool's gold is people who think that you can do it in a week or 10 days or six months. And what are they getting? They're getting some power. They're getting some energy, but not getting the music. Well, well, you know, you're after something. So it's me and it's the instrument and it's the music. So I'm after the music, but you can't bypass the instrument. Well, it's a great way to then get it back to you and your story. So 
you've told us where you were born, and now how did this become the journey you were going to take? When did the instrument come into your hands, the first instrument? Uh, when you really understood this box with these strings? Well, I don't know when I understood it first. I had my first instrument when I was three, and um, my father, uh, at that time, it was a tiny little, you know, little, tiny, small little thing. It may have been a play thing. And uh, he'd sit me up on his knee and uh, put my hand around the little bow, little thing, and uh, he'd put his hand around my left hand and he'd lilt a tune in my ear, whatever the tune was, and he'd be moving my arm and planting the seed, so to speak. Uh, and I thought that that was the greatest thing ever. Because um, in my own case, uh, you know, it just everything felt so natural. Music just, I, you know, I, I, I like to kind of sing as a child and uh, the, mu the sound of the music just felt perfect in a sense. And having somebody like my father in the house to nurture me along the way, um, in a sense, I had the best of every world that you could think of. Because in, in my case, I, I had a great musician in the house who was my father. I had five other musicians. They were all older than me. And they were all, of course, at on a different part of the journey. And I was trying to keep up with everybody and my enthusiasm and all that stuff. And then we had uh, an endless stream of people coming to our home because we had a shop in Dublin, you see. Hmm. And if you were an Irish musician and you came to Dublin, you inevitably made your way down to Cable Street and you came into the horseshoe shop in Cable Street to meet John Kelly. So up when I was growing up, we had uh, every musician you could think of was in that shop at one time or another. And what did they sell in the shop? Uh, well, it changed uh, a little after World War One. It was at the end of World, excuse me, World War Two. At the end of World War Two, they were selling um, primarily food items and that, but. After that then, and things settled a little bit in the 50s, then it turned into a hardware shop. And my father also bought and sold fiddles and some instruments. And uh, I was wondering, yeah. And he did a little bit of repair as well and that, so. Um, I was great, you know, you'd come home, you know, you'd, you'd come in from school, let's say, and you'd walk into the shop, I'd be running in to get a sandwich or something for me lunch, and, you know, Tommy Potts would be standing up at the counter, or some famous musician, and, they could be playing a tune or just talking or whatever. You'd be looking up at them and standing there listening to the chat for a moment and then run over to the house and get a sandwich and run back to school again. And the next day it could be somebody else. So you'd never know who you'd walk into or in the house visiting in that. What was the kind of uh, almost aura that went around some of these very well-known and very highly respected fiddlers at that time? I mean, there's a tradition of having that respect in for the for the clergy, especially back way back. How was how it for the fiddler? How do you see it play out in terms of the deference that was shown to them? Well, um, uh, you know, um, again, in my father's case, that's what people did. They they he he was one of the even though he wasn't that old at that time, but he was one of the let's call him an elder statesman in the music, and people came to meet him and to, in a sense to. Uh, to, I shouldn't really say to get his approval, but whatever the corresponding concept would be connected with that. So um, he had a great status and he had a great presence. And then when, in turn, you see, um, in my father's case and in my family's case, he had a very, very broad range of interest within the Irish tradition. So we were lucky growing up because we didn't only listen to County Clare music, but we listened to music from all over the country. And there's quite a distinct difference between like Donegal and Clare and music and Cork. Yeah, it's just, it's very it's th there are similarities, yes, and there are very very definite differences. And uh, in the world of fiddling, there are technical differences and there are repertoire differences, uh, approach, all kinds of differences. And 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 uh, in turn, then if you, my father also believed in um, you should always be respectful of the melodies, and you should try and pay homage to the source material. So, as an example, if you learn the tune from John Doherty, John Doherty was a famous Donegal fiddle player, and came from a 
long, long line of great musicians, mostly fiddlers and pipers. But technically, John Doherty, uh, his playing wouldn't be, let's call it, as lyrical and as flowing as, let's say, my father's fiddle style or Michael Coleman's fiddle style or, uh, you know, whoever. So technique-wise, if you wanted to try and do justice to the playing of John Doherty as the source material, you as the fiddle player then would literally have to change your approach to bowing and fingering to be respectful to the melody and the source. In this case, it might be John Doherty. So you can't be a Southern-style fiddler playing the source tune in a Southern way. You'd have to turn into a Northern-style fiddler for three minutes or four minutes to play it as best as you could. Of course, it's an impossible thing to do because you, how would you do it? But at least you're trying. You know, you're trying. I like that idea. And it's not a matter of mimicking other people. It's a matter of respect. It's, 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 of course, absolutely. You respect that tradition and... Uh, I'm so interested by the fiddlers who, um, of, of previous generations who didn't have recording devices and had some way of this incredible memory, audio memory, they could hear a tune and, and really capture it and then work on it, especially what you're talking about is not just the melody line, but really understanding how it sounded in that particular tradition. That's cool. Yeah, and um, also... Uh, these people, uh, there, were, there was no ego. Ego didn't exist in in the way it does in the modern sense um, and the modern world that we live in. And and their music was natural. It was just what people did. They they went about their daily lives, and you know, so many of them were married with families. And they, if they worked on farms, they worked on the farm, and they worked very very hard. And at night time, if they were interested in music, they played music and so on. And, and uh, when they had their families, quite a number of those people ended up in Dublin, let's say, and they had families. So they were country people who moved to Dublin and they had a family of children who grew up in Dublin. And, and that's the way they were with their children. So they taught that sense of respect. Um, you were respectful of your elders and, you know, these days, you know, these days, let's say in a lot of homes you go into, the young children, they kind of run the household and they talk out of place and they don't really show respect in that way. My situation growing up was the opposite. I grew up, in a sense, in silence. I don't mean literally in silence, but I grew up with that sense of respect for my elders and and uh, the, if there was visiting people in the home, you were respectful. And um, and in turn, then that gives you an opportunity to really study the music that they're playing. Because if you're not involved, then you're, you're almost like a little satellite. You're moving over there and you're moving over here and back over to the other spot and you're watching that fella's bow arm and her bow arm and you're listening to the sounds and you're... In your own way, if you have the interest, you're kind of mesmerized by who you're, who you're looking at, whatever the day might be and whoever the person might be. So in that sense, it gave you a great opportunity to be, to be uh, working on your music. I love that idea. And that association with the word silence. Mm. See myself as a storyteller as well as a fiddler. Mm. And uh, one time somebody said that storytelling was the... the uh, it was like painting, and the paints in, in storytelling are your words, and uh, the brush in storytelling is your voice and the expression you can bring to it. But the canvas in storytelling isn't your audience. The canvas is silence. Silence. And that silence isn't something you add a little here and there for effect. It's under everything. And every musical note, every word is placed upon that silence. But the silence itself has a almost... A, infinite amount of energy and presence and meaning somehow. And uh, that's the music I'm really drawn to. I'm, I'm drawn to the fiddlers who could, you know, from at a distance, it would seem like they're playing a hundred notes, you know, just flying through notes after. But those fiddlers where I listen, I can hear silence between the notes, just moving in and out among the tunes. I really like that. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's a, I'm, I'm, I'm so interested in that, I can't tell you. You're absolutely right. I couldn't agree more because um, 
because and you're reminding me of so many different things. Um, you, you, in a sense, want people to learn in silence because silence is a great place to work from. It's, it's in essence, the, you know, your starting point is silence and, and, and your thoughts as you listen to what you're going to do or try and do. And so you need time to, to analyze and just think for yourself for a moment as opposed to rushing into the idea. You want to sit back and uh, just give yourself some time and space. And in my own case, growing up then, and I was the youngest, as I mentioned earlier on, I spent most of my teenage years, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and so on, uh, in the house at home. And I seemed to be the one that sat in the house at night time with my father, who told his stories about growing up in Clare and musicians and that. And in turn, I was kind of fascinated by all that. So I sat there in silence night after night after night after night and I nodded my head and I listened and I nodded my head and I listened and I tried to remember as best as I could. But the thing is that that gave me a great grounding for my understanding of how to play music. And uh, so this concept of you're trying to rush into something, I don't necessarily think is a good thing. I think you need that space. And in turn, then if you if you read each other's body language when you have that conversation, it's not only the uh, silence, but it's also me reading your body language and vice versa to where if I have something else to say, you give me a chance to say it without interfering with my own rhythm. And I hopefully do the same thing with you. So we have a conversation in silence where we just read each other. And that translates itself into playing music beautifully with other people. It's, it's everything. Because music is not a defined thing where it's it's structured and it's like a metronome where it happens and happens and happens and happens. There's an ebb and flow. So as we have a chat together, we work and we ebb and we flow. And if we feel comfortable, the ebb and flow feels so natural. And likewise with music, if we're ebbing and flowing and tuned in. So again, back to my father, my father would always say to us growing up when he was teaching, he'd say, you need to play underneath the player. You, you don't play to dominate, you play to blend. And so if you're going to blend, you don't start off powerfully. You start off in a quieter way and you feel your way into the blend as opposed to pouncing on the idea. There is this idea, I think, uh, inherent in that approach that the universe has its own own ways of surprising us. So th when people listen to these tunes, and they're not initiated into that world, and maybe they know classical music, which can be very complex, have different movements, have all kinds of instrumentation, I listen to an Irish fiddle tune and say, well, you know, they, wait, wouldn't you get bored playing that tune for 30 years, right? But there is in the process of playing it, often for me, a moment of surprise. And it can be a very subtle things. Somehow a phrase is different or a note gets emphasized. You didn't expect it would get emphasized, but it just brings a sense of surprise. And that surprise renews the interest, keeps it alive. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I think, I think at a point in time on your journey, you, you realize um, what's important. And it seems to me that the important expression in any music is how it makes you feel emotionally. And sometimes that can be with a lot of technique, and other times it can be hardly any technique. So, so the whole this whole discussion about technique is another interesting thing because technical skill in an instrument doesn't necessarily mean good music. It simply means that you have technical skill on the instrument. It depends on what you want to do with your skill. Yeah, and these memories of people that I've learned tunes from, that uh, when I'm playing the tune, I often feel their personality. It's almost, you know, I'm connecting back and I'm remembering the time and what a good time it was to learn that tune with that person. So there's a lot of emotional things going on when you're playing and it's a delight. Yeah, and when you said, when you talked about uh, space and you hear space and tunes and stuff, I mean, if you think about that, then it's, uh, if you, like the baker, let's say, or the cook who makes the lovely meal, and they know exactly what the blend of their lovely spices are going to be. And likewise with the musician, if you know what the tune needs 
and you don't over embellish the tune or maybe under embellish it, but you know what the right combination of things to put into that tune is, well, that's, that's, that's great. Right. And in storytelling, there's a woman uh, who is a very well-known storyteller, wrote a wonderful book called The Way of the Storyteller. She said, of all the different techniques and things you can bring to that art, she said the most important was what she called the gift of selection. And she did uh, uh, compare that to a musician's uh, ear for pitch. And I've seen this among many storytellers, and I'm not talking about professional storytellers, but like my grandfather. People just had that knack of the story. And they always seem to draw a story for the exact moment. Mm. They just had this knack of knowing what story to tell at the right moment. You know, the laugh had gone in a certain way. You know what it's like, an evening of, uh, of getting together with friends and playing music and then somebody's telling a story. And then we know the person who's, who's kind of tone deaf in that regard. And they suddenly tell a story that just, it's out of, it just doesn't fit with what was just told or what, the, the mood in the room. And I think a musician in the same way, when I'll play, often the selection of the tune at that moment. You might have thought you were going to play this jig and suddenly you decide to play this jig. Or even in the jig you've already decided to play, maybe you're getting ready to do a concert and you, know, you have a set list and you start to play and you might play it differently because something's going on. The audience, there's, there's, this is not happening in a vacuum. But again, I think when you really get focused on technique, when so much of our focus in modern culture is on items and objects and the selling of objects, a performance becomes another object. And, it, and there's certain expectations that it should be in a certain way. And then people feel, oh, well, I paid for that and I got what I wanted. But it's not reacting in real time to what might happen. And there's no surprise in it. Yeah, and uh, and uh, Irish music is full of blue notes and all kinds of notes and off notes and, and they add colour to the tune. So it's not about that kind of preciseness. It's about the colour and the shape of the tunes and what you need. So often you will on purpose play the notes off because it's exactly what the tune needs. In the moment, needs. in the moment, exactly. It 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 uh, finishes the picture for you yeah. by uh, maybe not being as precise as another part of the tune, but you you're going to embellish, so you embellish with a kind of a bum note. <laughs> but uh, it's the right kind of bum note to make the tune good. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe it's like the old uh, putting the flaw, the tiny flaw in something, right? Because perfection itself is something that sort of feeds our hubris. Maybe we should leave it alone. Right. It has to be a good excuse, you know, because if someone could say to you, well, that wasn't really very good, you could say, oh, well, sure, I did everything in purpose. <laughs> All right. I think so. So tell me about the time the, the first violin came into your life that just was like, oh, this is it. This is the violin. I'm going to live with this violin for a while. Well, um, if I could go back just uh, for a moment and uh, tell you one little story that you reminded me of. When my father was growing up and um, he got an interest in the fiddle, and he was about nine or ten at that time, the local schoolmaster in the school, the little village that was closest, about a mile and a half away from the house, the village is a village called Cross, and the Cross National School there... And uh, my father went up to the the schoolmaster and asked him if he could borrow his fiddle. And the the headmaster was taken aback and he didn't know what this young fellow was saying to him. And anyway, he agreed to give him a loan of the fiddle. And my father's problem then was, how do I smuggle the fiddle in at home without anybody seeing me? Because you see, there were farmers and, uh, you know, there weren't necessarily people that would want the children to be playing music all day long. They want them to get ready to start working on the farm in a few years when they get a bit stronger and that. And they had to sneak the fiddle into the house and hid it out in the hay barn and uh, would sneak out to the hay barn in the afternoon and as best as he could, there was no teacher or anything, but as, as best as he could, he, he'd try and make a sound on the fiddle and that. But before he got the fiddle, then he had two sticks. He told me he had the branches of a tree, two branches, and that was his fiddle for about nine months, he said, before he plucked up the courage to go to the, to the schoolmaster. 
So he might lilt the tune and just pretend? Pretend it was a fiddle and just hum the tune or whatever in his head. And uh, his, his first tune was made by the local blacksmith who never made an instrument in his life, but my father couldn't figure out who to ask, so he asked him if he'd try his hand at making a fiddle and made made a fiddle as best as he could and um, put the varnish on then at the end. And, of course, to let the fiddle dry, he put the put the fiddle down on a chair on newspaper. You know the way you'd put a bit of newspaper down to keep it clean? But, of course, it never dawned on that, of course, the newspaper would stick to the back of the fiddle and, of course, bits of the of the newspaper stuck to the fiddle. And uh, so that was my, that was my father's, uh, eventually his first fiddle himself. But uh, in my case, my father had instruments in the shop and he, he bought a fiddle in 1960 that was made in Alsace-Lorraine. France and Germany fought over that area because it was rich in mining and coal and that. And um, the, the fiddle was made in 18, it was made between 1812 and 1814 to one, one time I think it's 1812 and the next thing I think it's 1814 and then and then he went on in 1963 then he bought an instrument made by a, an Italian maker called Aldo Zani or Zini in 1948 and that became his main fiddle and the fiddle that was made in Alsace-Lorraine was a fiddle that was passed through the family and my brother John played that one for a while and then I eventually played it a lot and uh played other fiddles along the way. And then that particular fiddle ended up under a bed for about 15 years. And uh, then I kind of rediscovered it, you know, 20 years ago or so. And um, I had an impression of how it was. And I suddenly one day decided to try a different set of strings on the fiddle. And uh, when I put that set of strings on that instrument, it turned into a different creature personality changed completely and I I was in I couldn't believe it and that's the fiddle I'm playing ever since I love how these violins come into our lives mm. and in this case out of your life a ways and then back into your life mm. again and kind of reveal themselves in a different way that's mm. great that's great so that's the, the fiddle you're playing I talked to Daryl Anger and he uh, was talking about this violin maker who's exceptionally good at what he does and per- produces violins for symphonic performers and things. But once a year, he'll make one fiddle that he just takes his complete, uh, sort of decides to make it very artsy, and he'll do something with it. And uh, one of the fiddles, I think the fiddle that Daryl has, has a big eyeball painted on the back of it. All right. So he does things like that. I could see him making one of those violins and having little bits of newspaper along Mm. the back, and you could read from 1905, you know, some little stories. That's a great image of the, of the violin, having that, your, your dad's fiddle. Yeah, and you know, I mean, there, there's a famous man in Scotland, Honeyman, and he, he'd look at instruments and so on. And I mean, in a sense, all you're looking for is that sound in order to have the relationship with the instrument that you want to play. If it feels right, so it's feel. And then if the sound suits you, and, uh, and then you have to develop the relationship with the instrument. And uh, if all those things are fit and they seem to be happening then you're, you're going with the flow of that particular instrument and you develop your own personal relationship so it doesn't have to be the most valuable instrument in the world i mean we had factory made instruments that came through the shop uh, chinese and czechoslovakian fiddles and some of them i thought were marvelous and there were 50 dollar fiddles some of them so so you never know did your dad or your family or did yourself ever have any run-ins with the clergy in ways? I've heard that from other families. Of, uh, I guess there was licensing laws about dances and so forth. So what was your family or your father's opinion about religion? Was he religious himself? He was a very religious man. He went to Mass every day. And, um, and then uh, we had a church up the street, up the road from us, uh, Dominic Street. I, I actually was an altar boy there myself, growing up, and uh, my father would go to Mass there on the, on the daily, and then he'd go on the weekends. And Well, you're talking about the Dance Hall Act of 1935, maybe the mid-1930s. And so they, they shifted away from, they tried to change the landscape, the social landscape at that time, and they actually passed a, a law 
and they moved um, people from the local country houses and the local crossroads into, let's say, a hall in a town where you could manage it and control it. If there was a charge, you could charge and so on and so on. But that changed the whole dynamic of the music, the tradition of the music from generation to generation. And it, it had a very negative effect on our musical tradition. So you're saying that once this law was passed, it was illegal to have the dance at the crossroads? Well, yeah, and it wasn't necessarily that you'd be brought off and arrested, but let's say it was discouraged heavily. So you were discouraged not to do that, and you were encouraged to move into a more controllable environment, let's say. And uh, it was a place for the clergy to keep an eye on you. And they had this idea that there was all kinds of, you know, body things or whatever going on. It was just sheer nonsense. It was just some idea that came into somebody's mind at the time. And they did a terrible disservice to our tradition. What was it like before then? How would that change in the tradition? I'm fascinated by that. Well, people just got together locally, uh, you know, your community, and you you met your neighbors and your family and friends, and you, you, you got together for social gatherings. Uh, they might have a game of cards, they might play a card game or whatever, and you, there might be a small little, you know, like a penny or a half penny, whatever it would be, and little games and stuff that they play. And then, and then um, there could be another gathering. Uh, people would bring food, they'd bring some food, and if there was a couple of bottles of drink of some kind, they'd bring a whatever it might be. And, and that's what they did, and they made their music, and they had great times, and they, they share their own local histories and so on. And suddenly that all changed. In West Virginia, there, uh, as you got sort of knowing the tradition and the older uh, players, and so uh, in some cases, alcohol would be a real, real problem for some, not for others at all. Would that play a role in the, in the world of fiddling? I don't think so. And I think that was just another one of the excuses that people come up with. And then it scattered the tradition in that way. And you might remember at that time, you had, um, uh, you know, with the advent of the 78 record and so on, you had the emigrant musicians, Michael Coleman and Morrison and Killorn and then others, John McKenna and so on, Tom Morrison. And before that, Patsy Toohey. Patsy Toohey was this extraordinary piper from Galway. And sadly for Patsy Toohey, he was born 30 years too early, so to speak. Had he been born in the 1890s, he would have lived at the same time as Michael Coleman, but he was born in 1860 and died in 1923. So, you know, he made cylinder recordings and only a handful of 78 records. So he didn't have the same influence, but his musicianship was just, he was a glorious musician, he was. But um, you see, in many, many ways, those 78 records that came back from America helped to keep traditional music alive in Ireland. That's what a lot of people don't really seem to understand. Just talk a little bit more about that, because I am too fascinated with that. Uh, we interviewed uh, Mark Katz at the University of North Carolina, whose specialty is the early technologies for recording violins. So maybe if you could, again, just explain a little bit more kind of what was going on with people leaving Ireland for many reasons they had to leave, coming to the United States, let's say, or Canada, and then how that music was recorded. Well, before the time of the Great Famine in 18, between eight, let's say the 1840s, but let's say 1841 to 1849, before that there were a number of mini famines. It wasn't just one famine that happened. There was several famines, significant famines that dated back to the early 1800s, but not on the same scale as the famine of the 1840s. So if you study Irish history and go back, let's say, 200 years before, we had um, the plantations. We had our, you know, of course, England um, invaded Ireland in the 1100s and late uh, 11th, 12th century and so on. And then they got their foothold after about 400 years. And we'd have to talk more about the history. But they tried then these plantations. They tried the plantation of Leash and Offaly. So, so Ireland was divided up into four provinces. And you have Leash and Offaly as two counties in the province of Leinster, which is where I'm from. 
Leinster would be over in the east. And that was a failure. It didn't work the way they the way they had hoped. And then they tried the plantation of Munster in the south, which is where Cork and Kerry and County Waterford and Tipperary are. And that didn't work. So the next idea was the plantation of Ulster in the north of Ireland. And of course, as you know, that was successful. And they displaced the native people, the Catholic people, and they brought in Protestants and Presbyterians from Northern England and Scotland into Northern Ireland. And that has its own, of course, you know, long and unique history. And you had um, smaller numbers of those people that emigrated to this country for various reasons and may have lived in more rural parts of this country at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's say one easy way to follow the the path would be to look at the names. You know, if you study people's names, it tells you what the backgrounds are right by the It's a way to identify people. But um, you had small numbers of people who were leaving then in the 1800s and some of them ended up in England and before that they were working on the canal systems in England in the 1700s. But after that then, if you move into the time period of the Great Famine, we had about a million people that died, possibly more, and you had about a million to a million and a half people who were forced to emigrate, leave deplorable conditions absolutely deplorable conditions in Ireland at the time. And uh, they they left for whatever reasons they had, but nothing, and they hoped for a, a better life in uh, another place. And the journey was deplorable in almost and The journey was through those ships with the diseases, and uh, if you even made it, never mind your life in the new land, but if you were just lucky enough to make it, and you know they were thrown overboard and there was all kinds of diseases that these poor people suffered from. Nothing, nothing. But in amongst all those people, then you had uh, musicians who left. And as I said, Patsy too, he came and was able to make, he worked in the vaudeville circuit and he was able to make recordings, thankfully. But anyway, Michael Coleman um, was maybe the most, he may have been the most influential Irish musician in the history of this music. And he left, he was born in 1891. He left, let's say about 1917, 1918 in that time. I, I couldn't tell you exactly. And he went to New York City and was in the right place at the right time with a number of other musicians as well. And uh, started to make these these uh, commercial recordings. And the commercial recordings by a great musician had a profound effect on people. Irish people, non-Irish people. The classical world, Fitz Chrysler wrote him a letter and told him how impressed he was and uh, tried to play. My father uh, heard a broadcaster, Fritz Chrysler, trying to play an Irish reel on the radio about 1937. And, um, but anyway, Michael Coleman was a marvellous musician. He was also a marvellous improviser. He stayed within the structure and he changed the melodies along the way and added these gorgeous variations to his tunes. Mm. Uh, he had that great ability not only to, to be such a skillful player but also to be such a great improviser. And uh, so his recordings had such a profound effect on people back in Ireland, also the other people who were making those 78s. So in a locality like my father's, you the locals would get would get together for their dances and so on. And then if somebody was lucky enough to have an old gramophone player, they'd pull out the 78s that they had and play some of them. Or if there was a new one in from America sent by a family member, that record got played over and over and over and over again. And they discussed it in great detail and they were mesmerized by the device and the image of what they were looking at and then the sound of the music and there was great discussions and then what you start to do is of course you start to learn the tune from the player and in turn if you think about that then that starts to uh, change the local landscape of the music because now you have influences that are not local coming into your music and it starts to change things slowly but surely what about O'Neill? What role did he play in collecting the uh, the tunes? I mean, his collection, O'Neill's collection, I'm aware of, but it, it was that influential in the Irish tradition? Well, it's interesting because uh, 
it's it's in some ways it's the Bible. People say, well, it's on in O'Neills and it's in O'Neills and it's in O'Neills, but the thing is, is that uh, you have to be able to read. Uh, and my impression of a lot of the players who used to talk about O'Neills was that most of them didn't read music, but it was quoted. So. Yes, a lot of the tunes were collected by Francis O'Neill and he in turn did such an important job and he had the resources available to do that. And he did this in Chicago. He did it in Chicago. And he eventually became chief of police or commissioner of something of sort. Yes, he was chief of police in Chicago. Right. But um, had this passion. Had this passion for Irish music. He played the flute and between 1901 and 1905. Um, and, uh, and he also had some great people living in Chicago at the time who helped him. He knew Patsy Toohey. He was, a per he was friends with Patsy Toohey. There was another great piper called Barney Delaney, Bernard Delaney from Offaly, who was an extraordinary player. We don't have enough recordings of Barney Delaney, but he would, if he wasn't Patsy Toohey's equal, he would have been very close to his equal as a piper. And I thought Barney Delaney was a fantastic player. And uh, he also had a man called um, Edward Cronin, a fiddle player called Edward Cronin, who was an extraordinary fiddle player living in Chicago at that time, and others. So he had people that he could go to to talk and discuss things. And he was helped by a man called James O'Neill, who was a classically trained musician who could also document the tunes. He could write music and read music. And that was also very, very helpful to uh, Francis O'Neill. And you know what's interesting about reading through books is that you know, uh, well, a fiddler wouldn't do that. You know, the way the notes are written, you say, well, a fiddler wouldn't do that. That was obviously a piper or a flute player. So he must have got that tune from a flute player. He didn't get that from a fiddler because it's not structured the way we'd play it on the fiddle. You know, those little details that you, that you come across. Called reading between the lines. Reading between the lines, right. Yeah. What does it mean to make this step to make music your your professional life? In other words, that's how you would make a living or someone would make a living. How that shifted in the tradition, because these were mostly farmers and shopkeepers that would play music as something they did in their lives. It was truly a pastime. But as we become a global community and because of media and people can hear this music, suddenly this opens up opportunities for people who might make a living doing that, joining a band, Planksteer, whatever. And there's this moment where there's a lot of interest in this music. What has been your experience in sort of transitioning into music being something that was also your livelihood? Uh, well, uh, it's such a broad question. It's uh, difficult to answer. Uh, there's so many avenues to the answer. I think definitely there are pros and cons with uh, making music for a living. And then in the moment when you make your presentation, if you're up on a stage somewhere, sometimes you might be inclined to change what you do just for whatever the reason might be, whether it's your energy level or your relationship with the instrument as you play, uh, and so on and so on. Would you really play it that way? Well, I might or I might not, and so on and so on. So the comfort of making the presentation in a more relaxed setting versus a more formal setting, and uh, in a sense, sometimes it changes. You know, because um, if I speak honestly on this, um, if you have a player that you like yourself and that player might play in their own community somewhere and you think about that player playing that tune in that way on the stage, the audience might sit there and say, hmm, it doesn't, I'm not really used to that sound or whatever it might be. And so consequently, you might make adjustments to present it in another way because you're doing this thing formally. So that doesn't necessarily mean that there's anything wrong with the player who plays that way. But there seems to be a journey in a sense that you have to go from from over there to the presentation publicly to present or package the idea, let's say, in a a way that suits a modern audience. So that's not a good thing because you lose the essence of what it is to begin with. 
mm. you know. And um, and then even even myself as a player, I sometimes am disappointed with, with what I do because, you know, you want to play it the way you really love it and you hope to play it. And when you sit in the house on your own, uh, you want to play it that way. But sometimes the situation doesn't allow you to do that and you have to change it. And then the connection between the tradition itself and uh, what you do as a musician if if you don't have a relentless hold as best as you can to the tradition itself well then that's a problem we're here at the national folk festival and somewhere and i'm, I'm going to probably butcher this i there was some quote that folk music and folk arts are created without any thought of financial gain mm. It, it is this idea of taking a folk tradition, and what does that mean when something's a folk tradition, and then putting it into a system that has become extremely sophisticated in delivering cultural entertainment. I wrote one book called Slaying the Gorgon. The subtitle is The Rise of the Storytelling Industrial Complex. Right. Everywhere you turn, there's this mechanism in place, and also a mechanism that says, this is the group that will deliver the art in your community. And you don't do art anymore yourself. You, you're over here and this is what you do, but you don't do art. Of course, folk art is this idea of something you participate in for the joy and, and meaning in itself. And you are someone almost between those worlds, I would think, and advocating for that old school idea of what art can be in somebody's life. Is that fair? Absolutely, because um, you, know, you, you want people always to go back to the source material. Always, uh, and uh, and we're in in the field of Irish music. It seems that there's a couple of different uh, mentalities about how the tradition should go forward. There are people who don't want to look back; they only want to look forward and play it whatever way they want to play it. And uh, consequently, the the melodies themselves that are played, the tunes, or if they improvise, they're, they're improvising from a different point of view, from a different angle. And, and often that angle is not based upon your knowledge of the tradition itself. In other words, it doesn't go back to, let's say, as far back as you can with recordings, the 1890s, but a willingness to consider the sounds from the past. Because if you're interested in the sounds from the past, then hopefully you can put those sounds into your own music because they're in your head as you study. So I think we're in a time right now that uh, people are quite frightened, and with good reason, I think. I picked up the New York Times at Sunday here at the festival, and I just scanned the front articles on the front page, and I realized I, I, didn't, I couldn't even open up you know, at my breakfast and read them. You, know, you have all these problems going on in Europe with immigration, you have things with global warming, you have wars, you have a political system in the United States that seems to have become uh, untethered from any rational understanding of politics that I am used to. And so I look at the arts and say, you know, what are, how relevant are they? What can they do in this time? I'm not building a better solar panel. I'm not uh, figuring out, uh, you know, how to stop a war in a certain place. I'm concerned with this music, and I'm concerned with this particular instrument, the fiddle. And yet I, I, I guess I believe that by showing people a way that they can find a an opportunity in their own lives to find a renewing energy, a source. I mean, because you keep talking about going back to these older players, and then you talked about the terrible conditions many of them had to survive. Somehow in this music is the language of survival. And we can participate in that music by playing it, not just listening to somebody else, but to playing it ourselves and find in it a way again to be in the world. Yeah, and it grounds you, it gives you a good grounding. And um, and if you, you know, in order to figure out where you're going in the future, it's really important to figure out where you've come from in the past. And in my own case, I do a lot of teaching as well. So when I talk to people about teaching and trying to preserve the tradition, because I really want to do the best I can to preserve this tradition. And I do that by looking backwards uh, within the tradition, even though I realize I'm alive today. You know, and I grew up in a different environment than my father grew up. He grew up in a rural community and was a farmer. I grew up in the middle of the city of Dublin, surrounded by houses and traffic and noise and chaos and, you know, city living. But there's a natural dilution that happens from generation to generation anyway. 
and you lose a little bit along the way. So if it's a pile of leaves in the garden and you're raking the leaves across the garden, you know, the side of the garden you start from is the past and then you rake it across the garden and you get to the middle of it and then that's the present and then you bring it over to the other side of the garden, that's the future. And along the way, you're going to lose leaves, but you still end up with some kind of a pile of leaves. But what's happening in the times that we live in today, that there are people who don't seem to be interested in the pile of leaves at all. Or if they get to the other side of the garden, it's a, a pile of leaves with a tire and a crankshaft and, uh, you know, some piece of plastic, who knows what. So it's a, it becomes a different creature. And I think that all those people from the, not, not necessarily that it's only past players, of course not, uh, modern day players as well, but it's, it's that uh, expression. They, they, they understood the language of their music and they understood the language of their culture. They understood that. It was it was so natural. And when they made their music and they spoke to you, you you heard the lovely colour and the sound of their their accents. And uh, when they made their music, they had that lovely colour in the music that they made. So if it's a blues singer from some rural part in the south of this country talking and singing the songs, or if it's a, an Irish farmer from the west of Ireland talking with their local accents and uh, playing their tunes. It's the same expression, because it affects you in the same emotional way. And that, I think, is the real stuff, and, I, and that, I think, is the, the ingredient that's most missing today when you hear a lot of players playing. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow Project, to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. And let me say goodbye with one of my favorite quotes from Oscar Wilde. Yes, I am a dreamer, for a dreamer is one who can only find his way by moonlight, and his punishment is that he sees the dawn before the rest of the world. Thank you.